This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hearing loss in the adult is extremely common, especially in those who are older. It's thought to affect at least one-third of Americans between the ages of 65 to 75 and nearly half of those over the age of 75. There are also reasons to expect these numbers will worsen once our current young adults become older. Today we'll explore hearing loss in the adult with Dr. Matthew Carlson, an ENT physician and otologist in the Department of Otorhinolaryngology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. Well, what type of hearing loss do we typically see in the adult population? So broadly, we classify hearing loss as conductive hearing loss and sensorineural hearing loss, and you can have a mixture of those called mixed hearing loss. Conductive hearing loss is quite common. It can be from fluid in the middle ear space. Children get that very frequently with otitis, but adults can also get it. And cerumen impaction. So uh, the elderly population, as earwax becomes less soft, sometimes people accumulate earwax, and that's a common cause of hearing loss as well. Uh, sensory neural hearing loss implies that the inner ear has a change over time that's particularly related to um, aging but can be caused by other things as well and it typically affects the high frequencies and so collectively those are the different types of hearing loss one can experience. I know there have been times where I've considered being a serumenologist. Um, there's a lot of my patients come in with serumen impactions and uh, when we clean those out it's amazing the difference and they are so grateful and it's a pretty rewarding uh, procedure. It is. Uh, it's one of the few things they come in and they think they might, they, they're concerned that something else is going on, something more sinister, and you remove a plug of earwax and they're the most grateful patients yep. you can have. Exactly. Well, hearing loss is not a life-threatening event, but it has a significant social impact, doesn't it? It does. Um, we commonly say that hearing loss is a silent condition, or a, no pun intended, uh, that can uh, significantly impact a person's well-being. Uh, it can result in, particularly as a person ages, uh, it can result in social isol- isolation, depression, anxiety, days of lost work, reduced employability, and it has a lot of downstream consequences beyond just not being able to hear somebody immediately in their environment. And I suspect it creates relationship problems too, and I think it sometimes it irritates the spouse or partner more than it does the patient who has the hearing loss. That's very common, uh, particularly uh, in the elderly population. It's frequent that the family members will urge the patient to come in rather than the patient either acknowledging it themselves or recognizing it. And there's kind of a, a joke that, uh, that, that happens. A lot of times we'll say it's the curse of humankind. Women will uh, develop a softer voice and a more high-pitched voice as they age, and men will develop a high-frequency hearing loss. And so you have the mm. older couple that seem to be yelling at each other, but they're just trying to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do patients notice as they develop, uh, we'll talk about sensory neural hearing loss. What, what, do they, what do they notice in terms of their symptoms? So very early on, it's often unrecognized by the patient, particularly if it's a mild unilateral loss or a bilateral uh, high-frequency hearing loss. It's not uh, significantly affecting the areas uh, for speech recognition, at least early on. But with time, when it becomes a little bit more severe, and particularly when it affects both ears, patients will have increasing difficulty, particularly when there's background noise. So in a quiet environment, most patients, even with a mild or moderate hearing loss, tend to do pretty good because they can look at the speaker, particularly when it's only one person talking to them. They can focus on that person, and whether or not they know it or not, they're often taking on visual cues to help them uh, with communication 
uh, when there's background noise, when there's multiple talkers, a lot of a lot of times a person's ability to compensate uh, is lost, and particularly in those situations, people will notice a hearing loss. Yeah. And I've noticed some of that myself. Being in a crowded room, uh, it's much easier for me to look at the person who's speaking and see their lips move in addition to hearing what they're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, tinnitus often accompanies sensory neural hearing loss. Does it always accompany that? Yeah, so tinnitus is uh, very prevalent in the adult population. Uh, depending on the study you read, it's, it occurs in up to 15 to 20% of adults at some point in their lifetime. And about 10% will report it being quite constant, and maybe 5 or 10% will say it's really significant and, and at times will impact their daily living or their well-being. It's more commonly noticed in quiet environments. Any bit of background noise will commonly mask that sound, but people will particularly notice it uh, when they're going to bed at night and they're trying to get to sleep and it's difficult at those times, or also during quiet times during the day when they're trying to concentrate. So tinnitus is commonly associated with hearing loss, but interestingly, you can have tinnitus and have relatively normal hearing, and you can have more advanced hearing loss and still not have tinnitus, but overall there is uh, some level of association between the two. And as far as I know, the only real management for tinnitus is to induce some type of uh, white noise or some background noise. Is that still the recommendation? Yeah, and uh, I like the fact that you use management rather than cure. Unfortunately, despite being one of the most prevalent conditions that uh, adults can experience, there's actually no cure for tinnitus still. Anything we have uh, aims at reducing the symptoms, but they don't actually get rid of, uh, reducing the impact of the symptoms, but they actually don't get rid of the tinnitus itself. So the most common strategy is masking, and that's introducing some level of background noise, and that can kind of dull out the, the sound of tinnitus over time. When tinnitus first comes on, uh, a lot of times it's more distracting, but with time a person can become used to it, kind of paralleling the idea of living close to the train tracks. Initially, it might be really annoying, but over time you might habituate to it and it doesn't seem to bother you as much. But there are some people that continue to ha struggle with tinnitus despite having it for a long time. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about chronic loud noise exposure and what if impact that has on the development of sensory neural hearing loss. So when we talk about hearing loss related to noise exposures, we, we can talk about acoustic injury or acoustic trauma, and that usually implies a single event, a loud gunshot or some other loud event that results in uh, some level of hearing loss um, based on that single one event. Repetitive noise exposure is usually falls under the umbrella of noise-induced hearing loss. Noise-induced hearing loss implies that a person has repetitive long-term chronic exposures that can be from recreational um, exposures, such as hunting, or it can be also be occupationally related, uh, perhaps a person working in a factory around heavy equipment. So does sensory neural hearing loss, are the, is it accelerated by chronic noise exposure? Would it, would it happen just as a result of aging, or do you need that noise exposure to cause it? That's a good question. In medicine, we, kind of, we always like to think that we can find one thing that's driving the patient's condition, but in actuality and practically speaking, it's usually multifactorial, and certainly hearing loss is the same. So there are many things that contribute to hearing loss over a person's lifetime. Their general health, there is some genetic component, even in adult-acquired hearing loss. A repetitive noise exposure, even if it's not a super loud noise, but just exposed over a long uh, period of time, uh, and then also uh, aging, and kind of those things all together will result in some level of hearing loss. With hearing loss, there's a characteristic pattern that you might see on a hearing test or an audiogram, and that's a noise notch at around three or 4,000 kilohertz. And that's commonly seen, but you can certainly develop other patterns. And as you alluded to, it's commonly a, a factor of many things contributing to developing the overall level of hearing loss a person experiences. You mentioned a sudden 
exposure to a loud noise, like a firecracker or a gunshot. I've had patients who had sudden significant hearing loss as a result of that. But in many cases, that seems to be reversible to some degree. Is that true? So we define acoustic trauma with a loud noise exposure resulting in hearing loss as kind of a temporary, or we call it a temporary threshold shift, or a permanent threshold shift. And we define that based on whether or not the symptoms persist longer than 24 hours. Initially, a person will experience hearing loss, and they'll often have concomitant really loud tinnitus, not always, but frequently. And then usually over the course of seconds, minutes, or hours, that hearing loss will recover to close or maybe the same um, level uh, at baseline. But some people will experience a permanent threshold shift, and that can be related to how loud it was and if they've had a previous noise exposure or other susceptibilities. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned uh, gunshot sounds. In our practice, we do audiometric screening periodically in our patients, and we're always looking for an asymmetric hearing loss. Yeah. And the first time I found this in a person who shoots guns is that the hearing loss tends to be worse in the ear away from the firearm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Those comments bring up a couple important points. Uh, we ca- kind of classify hearing loss uh, patterns into more benign ca- uh, types and more uh, concerning types. And when a person has asymmetrical hearing loss, we always say, well, why is there asymmetry in it? And of course, in those situations, we'll often get a screening MRI to make sure there's not an acoustic neuroma or some other causative pathology. In most cases, it's a more symmetrical loss. But in the case of uh, gunfire exposure, there's an interesting phenomenon that can occur with head shadow, head shadow effect. So a, a person using a handgun will usually get an equal exposure in both ears. But a person who's using a long gun, such as a rifle or a shotgun, will typically put one ear into their shoulder as they're aiming, and the other ear will be more towards the gun. And so you'll have an asymmetrical hearing loss, again, usually in the high frequency, centered around three or uh, 4,000 hertz. Hmm. Interesting. What type of typical daily activities that we might do are loud enough to contribute to a potential hearing loss? That's a good question. So generally speaking, for occupational noise exposure, the the going punchline is if you have um, long-term exposure of over 85 decibels, you should begin thinking about having hearing protection. And I think you should transfer that also to recreational exposures. So um, loud traffic and background noise in that sort of setting could be as high as 90 decibels. Motorcycle, a loud, very loud motorcycle or a lawnmower uh, might be as high as 100 decibels. Sporting events, uh, if you went to the Vikings game or something like that in a closed stadium, can reach 120 decibels, which is quite loud sometimes to the point where you can even cause discomfort. And then a loud gunshot fire, particularly without hearing protection devices, can result in a 140 dB plus uh, sound exposure. How about activities such as uh, using a lawnmower, snowblower, hand tools, things like that? Yeah, it, it largely depends on the unit that you're uh, talking about, but a lot of those uh, types of equipment provide louder noise exposure than 85 decibels, so often 90 or 100 or even as high as 100, uh, 110. But the other thing about that is it's not just a short-term exposure. This is a repetitive exposure, and when you're using those uh, that equipment, you might be using it for 20 minutes, half an hour, or mm-hmm. an hour, or even longer, depending on how, how large your uh, yard is. So I think that in those situations, it is uh, valuable to consider using hearing protection devices. Something as simple as a foam earplug can reduce the sound level exposure significantly. Are the foam plugs as effective as the uh, muffs? So it really depends on the device or on the earplug you're talking about and the headset you're, list- you're uh, talking about as well. So a good earplug can drop your decibel level by as much as 30 decibels. And uh, the same is true for a good earmuff, around 30 to 35 decibels. 
when a person has long-term exposure or repetitive noise exposure over 100 decibels, it's commonly recommended to use double hearing protection. So we say plug and muff. So you're actually putting an earplug in your ear and putting a headset or ear protection device over that. The protection given by double hearing protection isn't summative or additive. So you don't take 30 plus 30 and it gives a 60 decibel reduction. It's not quite that dramatic. So if you use a earplug and a uh, ear muff, for example, you'll often get a 35 and uh, usually not anything more than a 40 decibel reduction in noise exposure. Hmm. Okay, interesting. What's the thought of our young people listening to music with headphones? Are they going to have more of a problem with the sensory neural loss as they get older? There's certainly a significant concern uh, surrounding that. And one of the issues, I think there's two things at play when we are uh, considering uh, that population in particular. The first thing is uh, every couple decades we go by, the average life expectancy is increasing. And we know that uh, the level of hearing loss is strongly associated with how long a person lives later in life. The other thing is when a person's listening to a headset in particular, it's often goes unnoticed how loud it is to other people. So if you have a young child, they could have their iPod or their headset uh, to a very loud level and it might not be noticed by the parents and they might be doing that every single day. And so I think um, monitoring that is a valuable thing. Also educating teenagers and other people that are listening to headsets or in their car with their car radio. Again, all of these exposures are additive over time. It's not a single event. They don't notice the hearing loss the next day usually, but all these things accumulate over time, and they can have a significant impact, particularly when a person's older. All right. Well, let's turn now to managing patients with sensory neural loss. What options are available? Uh, so there's several options available. So currently, there's no cure for sensory neural hearing loss. Most types of sensory neural hearing loss are related to loss of the inner ear hair cells or the terminal projections of the cochlear nerve. So in contrast to fish, amphibians, birds, for example, they, those uh, creatures can regenerate hair cells. Humans can't. And despite all our advances in technology and regenerative medicine, we still don't have a cure for it from that perspective. So there's no way to reconstitute normal acoustic hearing. So what you lose, you're kind of stuck with. A person who has very mild hearing loss, particularly it's one in one ear, or they work or live in a quiet environment, they might not notice it or they might not do anything about it. When a person has more advanced hearing loss, moderate hearing loss, for example, and particularly when it affects both ears, most people are thinking about getting a hearing aid. That's particularly important for people who have background noise exposure, particularly in their workplace. As you continue to develop more hearing loss, and particularly when you develop a loss in your ability to discriminate words, that's when people have increasing difficulty with hearing aids. At that point, you can either continue with a hearing aid that's not providing as much benefit as you'd like, or you can consider a cochlear implant, which is an, a surgically implantable device but is highly effective for advanced hearing loss. All right. Before we go that direction, you mentioned something I just want to ask you about. You mentioned speech discrimination. So is the hearing loss that occurs in sensory neural loss a loss of pure sound, or is it more of a brain issue where it has trouble discriminating these sounds into words? Those are, that's a very critical question. So when we test hearing, we're looking at a couple different things. We're looking at the frequency of hearing loss. We're looking at the degree or the severity of hearing loss. And those together collectively constitute what we test for pure tone average. So just whether or not a person can hear a certain tone at a certain level. But also equally important, we also test word recognition scores. And that's the ability for a person to discern words. So Noise will be presented at a comfortably audible level, and you can determine or ascertain how well a person can hear sound. So typically, a, uh, what we would consider largely normal is understanding 90% or greater of words correctly. So a word is presented to the listener, and they repeat that word back correctly. 
Hearing aids are still effective for people who have down to about 60% word recognition, but once you start getting lower than that, uh, hearing aids aren't as effective. Your ability to discern words dramatically uh, deteriorates when you have any background noise for a lot of people. So many people, again, will say they do well in quiet environments, but once you put them in a cocktail setting, uh, a restaurant, a conference room with multiple speakers, a lot of a lot of times performance deteriorates, particularly for people who have uh, kind of on-the-edge word recognition. Mm-hmm. Back to hearing aids. I'm sensing that patients have greater satisfaction with hearing aids today than they did, say, 20 years ago. Uh, in the past, patients would say, I got a hearing aid, just amplifies everything. It's just made everything worse. Uh, what have been some changes in hearing aids to make their satisfaction better now? Yeah, there have been significant advances with hearing aids. Um, one of the advances is a switch from analog to digital hearing aids. And with that, you have a lot of uh, ability to manip- uh, manipulate the signal. So there's filters you can use. You can use uh, directional microphones to preferentially take the sound of the speaker and reduce background noise. Uh, and there's a lot of programs you can actually put into a hearing aid that are particularly good for certain situations to benefit you. Um, you can, uh, there's also other functionality. You can introduce masking if you have con- uh, concurrent tinnitus, for example. And so there's been a lot of advances. Still, people will say certain things about hearing aids. There's certain things that there aren't perfect about them. We, we say it doesn't give back normal hearing. It does continue to amplify some sounds that you don't want. You have to have something in your ear. The average life for a hearing aid is about five to seven years before you need to get a new one. And in general, hearing aids are not covered by insurance companies. And so those are some um, drawbacks of hearing aids. Mm-hmm. Well, sensory neural hearing loss is usually bilateral and symmetrical. What are the advantages in having two hearing aids instead of just one? So just like having two eyes for vision and seeing in 3D, there are several big advantages of having binaural hearing or hearing in both ears, and particularly if it's um, good hearing in both ears. Uh, The two deficits you experience when you only hear well out of one ear and you don't hear well out of the other is uh, you can no longer localize sound well. So say, for example, you're in the lobby, a hotel lobby, and there's elevators surrounding you. You hear the ding go off, and you'll know, just like anybody else, that the elevator has arrived, but you won't know if it's behind you, in front of you, on the left or the right. You'll have to look around for it. That's maybe not, it doesn't have a huge impact on some people, but there are some people that are highly dependent on sound localization, such as a field officer, police officer, something like that. Uh, the second thing you lose or that becomes uh, increasingly difficult is speech understanding and background noise. So you can imagine the situation where you have relatively good hearing in one ear with the hearing aid and the other ear here isn't as good. And imagine if the background noise is going into your hearing aid and the speaker's on your bad side. And so now you're ta- preferentially taking in the bad signal and it's drowning out the speaker's voice. Okay. Finally, let's spend a few minutes talking about cochlear implants. Uh, I always assumed that these were limited to those who had a congenital deafness or deafness very early in life, but I understand that's not the case. I'm a little biased because uh, I'm a cochlear implant surgeon, but I will say that I think cochlear implants are the represent one of the greatest advancements, certainly in ENT, but I think all of medicine and surgery over the last 30 or 40 years. It's remarkable. There's no other sensory input that we can restore as well as we, what we can with a cochlear implant. So uh, cochlear implants were originally FDA approved in 1984 and 1985 for single channel and multi-channel devices. Uh, And they've significantly improved over time. Originally, they were only approved for adults. uh, And in the early 1990s, it was expanded to include children. And so now basically, uh, most people who cannot um, discern words very well, even if the volumes turned up significantly, may preferentially benefit from a cochlear implant over a hearing aid. And the real goal of evaluating somebody for a cochlear implant is asking the critical question, will they do better with a cochlear implant compared to a hearing aid in real-world listening environments? 
So we historically have put people in a soundproof booth and tested them under ideal situations, and we'll say, your hearing's pretty good. And they'll come back to us and say, no, it's not. I, I, I'm out and about in the store, and there's any bit of background noise, and I can't hear it. And so more and more, we're trying to replicate or simulate real-world world listening when we're testing. In those situations, we're seeing that a, actually a pretty significant number of people with more advanced hearing loss might benefit from cochlear implants. Matt, when you're doing a cochlear implant, uh, do you do a unilateral implant or bilateral? That's a good question. So in children who have congenital bilateral profound hearing loss, we usually do simultaneous bilateral cochlear implantation. But more commonly in the adult population, typically one ear is worse than the other ear, at, at least to some level. That's one of the concerns adults have when they undergo cochlear implantation. They say, I'm afraid of losing the natural hearing I have. And as a general rule of thumb, we typically implant the poor hearing ear first. And if a person gains a lot of a significant benefit from that side and they continue to have poor hearing in the contralateral side, most patients will make the decision, or a lot of patients, I should say, will make a decision to implant the contralateral ear if there's more advanced hearing loss in that side. One more question about this. And if insurance doesn't cover hearing aids, I imagine it would not cover cochlear implants, or is that incorrect? That's a really good question. So interestingly, hearing aids, as you had mentioned, most of the time are not covered by uh, insurance, but cochlear implants are covered by most private insurers and also Medicare, Medicaid. So you have to have a certain level of hearing loss, uh, but they actually are widely covered, um, a widely covered benefit by most carriers. Okay. Interesting. So I suspect there are a lot of patients out there who may benefit, but don't realize it. Um, there are some studies that have looked at the market penetration for cochlear implantation, and the commonly uh, quoted number is that only 10% of patients who might benefit from cochlear implants undergo the procedure. And a lot of it's uh, related to uh, just a lack of knowledge about the potential benefits and the uh, poor understanding about the risks uh, compared to the benefits of the procedure. It's not uncommon that a person will undergo cochlear implantation and afterwards say something like, I wish I would have known about this 10 years earlier or something like that. It's just an under-recognized technology despite its significant benefits. I do want to point out one other thing that I think it's important to discuss in this context. There was recently a paper uh, published by The Lancet in 2017 looking at cognitive impairment. And remarkably, the single largest modifiable risk factor for developing cognitive impairment in dementia was midlife hearing loss. Again, it's controversial in that group whether or not the hearing loss and the cognitive impairment co-develop and they're driven by something else, or is it actually the hearing loss is leading to a development of cognitive impairment later in life? And that has yet to be vetted out, but certainly that there is a very strong association between those two factors. Yeah. And I've seen that in my practice. It's, it's, my practice has been geriatrics. So we work hard to improve the sensory input, both with eyes in terms of getting rid of cataracts, and with impaired uh, hearing by trying to uh, work for hearing aids, which are sometimes difficult in a confused population. But yeah, that's, that's very true. Well, Matt, if you had to summarize in just a few points what we've talked about regarding hearing loss in adults, what would you tell our listeners? So I think the first thing is just to recognize the cause of the hearing loss and distinguishing a conductive hearing loss from something like wax buildup to sensory neural hearing loss. Secondly, I think it's by the time we send somebody for hearing screening, it's often when they have more advanced hearing loss. And so I think proactive screening, particularly for at-risk populations, is uh, potentially beneficial. I think patients will commonly uh, be aided later uh, where where they could have benefited much earlier with hearing aids, for example. 
there is some important data that says suggests perhaps treating somebody for hearing loss when they have it early on can be protective, maybe, uh, for later in life cognitive impairment. So I think we should be looking at that more. I think we have to look at the secondary downstream implications of hearing loss and not just looking at the, the thought that a person, you know, the immediate consequence of not being able to hear in that certain environment. It has a lot of downstream consequences like we talked about, social isolation, uh, depression, withdrawal, reduced employability, et cetera. So I think we have to look at this uh, big picture. Treatment, again, uh, is hearing aids. If you have any bit of hearing loss, you can consider hearing aids. But for more advanced hearing loss, uh, cochlear implantation provides a good strategy for many people. Well, we've been discussing hearing loss in the adult with Dr. Matthew Carlson, an ENT physician at the Mayo Clinic. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you so much for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.